Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we're looking at the September 14th issue, which is uh, leads off with a, um, uh essay by uh, our senior editor, Christopher Caldwell, who is... Um, if I may say, something of an intellectual historian, and the book that he's looking at is entitled A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars by Andrew Hartman, published by University of Chicago Press. I think anybody who's been following uh, politics, especially conservative politics, over the past quarter century, maybe longer, is aware of what the phrase culture wars means. The thesis of the culture of the, of the book is that the culture wars are essentially over and that um, uh, the conservative side lost. Um, Christopher Caldwell argues uh, in a very interesting way that um, uh, it may be, while it is true that the um, culture wars uh, have been won by the left, essentially, in, in various conflicts, political conflicts we've had over uh, sex and religion and race in the last few decades. Um, it may be that the victory is Pyrrhic, and who knows exactly uh, how in the long run it will turn out. Um, Hartman, who is a professor at the Illinois State University, uh, seems uh, persuaded um, of his point of view, uh, quite naturally, And um, but Christopher Caldwell wonders if um, his declaration of victory in the culture wars is the uh, wish being father to the thought. So it's an interesting discussion uh, by Chris Caldwell of the question of what exactly, what were the culture wars, what did they constitute, and what is the ultimate meaning of them, and are there really final victories in such things. So it's an interesting piece, which I, I know that our readers will enjoy. That is followed by a review by James Matthew Wilson, who is a literature professor at Villanova, of a new collection of poetry from Wyatt Prunty entitled Couldn't Prove, Had to Promise. Wyatt Prunty is professor of English at Suwannee and um, a uh, very distinguished poet. His latest book is from Johns Hopkins Press. Um, our, our reviewer, Wilson, uh, detects certain overriding themes and allegorical uh, ideas in Prunty's poetry, which is a kind of happy combination of traditional lyricism and uh, has an almost mystical quality to it, mixed in with uh, Prunty being a, uh, at Sewanee, of course, has a kind of southern accent to it all. Um, it sounds very interesting, and, and Wilson, who writes about poetry frequently for these pages, uh, makes it sound uh, very interesting indeed. The book is called Couldn't Prove, Had to Promise by Wyatt Prunty, P-R-U-N-T-Y, I I commend first our review, and then um, you might well be interested in the book itself. That is followed by a long piece from Joseph Epstein, a frequent contributor to our pages, um, on a a subject which is um, probably dear to his heart, but not something about which he writes very often. The book is entitled Federer and Me, A Story of Obsession by William Skidelsky. Roger Federer, of course, is a uh, professional tennis player. Um, Any of you who follow tennis will know, of course, who he is and and what he has accomplished in the past decade, decade and a half. 
But Federer and me uh, is a kind of, uh, I don't want to say sui generis, but it's a unique sort of volume, um, a little reminiscent of Frederick Exley's book, A Fan's Notes, about Frank Gifford, which was published a half century ago. Anyway, William Skidelsky, who's an English writer, the son, incidentally, of Robert Skidelsky, the uh, well-known economic historian who's written biographies of uh, John Maynard Keynes and Oswald Mosley. Anyway, William Skidelsky, his son, is literally obsessed with Roger Federer in the same way that Frederick Exley was about Frank Gifford. And the qualities that make Federer both a great player and a great athlete and someone that one could become obsessed with um, uh, is very interesting. Um, Epstein talks a little bit about the sociology of professional tennis over the past several decades. Um, I think like many of us, certainly me, um, the ideal of tennis as a, a graceful, dignified, and impressive athletic contest was uh, destroyed to some degree in the 1970s by the rise of people like uh, Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and, in my opinion, Billie Jean King. And other, one might say the the over-professionalization, the uber-professionalization of, of tennis in the 70s sort of spoiled it as the, as the ideal that it had been, almost Olympic ideal. You often read when you're reading about Billie Jean King or Jimmy Connors that they dragged tennis away from the grass courts and the country clubs and um, put it out on the streets where it belongs. Well, I, if, you're, if, like me, you don't find that a sign of progress, uh, you will enjoy uh, Joseph Epstein's <clears throat> essay on tennis and on Skidelsky's book, which even I, who don't follow tennis very closely and really don't know a great deal about Roger Federer other than what I briefly see in the sports pages, um, I, I'd be curious to read it just to see how he, how he uh, plays out this interesting idea. That is followed by a piece by Anne Continetti of a book by uh, Chester Finn and Brandon Wright. Chester Finn, of course, is a long time. Um, I, I, he was an official, I think, in the uh, Reagan uh, Education Department, but a long time writer about education. And um, this is entitled Failing Our Brightest Kids The Global Challenge of Educating High Ability Students. Um, the challenge of education reform in modern times has usually been about um, uh, keeping children in school, how to keep schools from failing, how to keep kids from failing in failing schools, and so on. Meanwhile, the, the students who are uh, pretty bright and well-motivated and um, quirky in their own way, but fully capable of learning and excelling and going on to do great things, they've tended to fall by the wayside, or they've been mixed in with the less gifted on the assumption that they would inspire them, and there have been any number of theories of how to deal with this, but but dealing with our our bright kids, the, the to use that god-awful phrase, the, the gifted and talented among us, uh, is something that hasn't really been um, addressed very much by the either the education establishment, the education department, uh, theorists of education, the graduate schools of education. Our bright kids have kind of fallen through the cracks. And Anne Continetti explains, who is a teacher herself, explains how this happens and um, the, way that, uh, the way that orthodox doctrine in education at the moment is really um, very bad for the students who um, who really need uh, more challenge, more rigor, more 
uh, more structure, other things that just are, are very much at odds with modern education theory. So it's an interesting argument, and Continetti um, explains it all in very succinct and interesting fashion, and of course in, with practical uh, experience, since she herself is in the trenches as a, a secondary school teacher. That is followed by two essays. One is an, uh, a, an essay by Tema Ehrenfeld, who usually writes about science for these pages, but spends a certain amount of her time uh, in the summer on Fire Island uh, near New York and has discovered a new uh, phenomenon of our civilization, bicyclists, um, and, and bicyclists who bicycle while texting and speaking on their cell phones. And to what extent this is a symptom of a, a kind of... Um, uh, a, a growing problem, one might say, in transportation in our country and ranging from big city streets to um, little avenues in, in pleasant and quaint uh, seaside resorts like Fire Island and elsewhere. Um, it's, it's a funny piece, but also uh, not so funny in some ways uh, since um, uh, people are risking their lives or risking other people's lives. John Podhoritz's book review this, uh, excuse me, movie review this week is the movie that has been dominating the, um, has been doing well in ticket sales the last week or two, Straight out of Compton, which is the um, uh, movie, uh, the bio biopic of um, NWA, which was a, um, a dominant uh, rap group in the uh, late 80s and 1990s. Um, they've kind of fallen apart in recent times, but uh, m some of their members are still around. And it's an interesting piece because um, the movie is itself at once a, a realistic look at, at, at rap music and that era in rap music, but at the same time it, it romanticizes um, people um, who don't lend themselves to being romanticized very successfully. And John, um, who is himself a, a somewhat estranged from the rap culture, he, as, he, as he explains, he was a little too old to to appreciate it when it arrived, and has never quite, um, uh, never quite appreciated it the way millennials might, for example. And nevertheless, as always, he has some very interesting observations about it and about the problem of making movies about these pop cultural phenomena that are that are very specific to a certain time or a certain age group or or whatever. Uh, as always, interesting um, to read John's review, even if the movie itself as of no particular interest. So that is the Books and Arts section for the September 14th issue. I thank you very much for joining me for these few moments. Um, I hope you will. this will prompt you to um, uh, read and enjoy the Weekly Standard, and I look forward very much to talking to you about next week's issue. <laughs>